This is an ABC podcast. Hi, ladies. Just a heads up that this episode deals with disordered eating and it might be challenging for some of you. Please take care and check out the show notes for support links. I feel like clean eating for me was just another way to exert control over my body. I definitely had a skewed idea of what healthy eating was. Like I would eat a head of broccoli and that would be my dinner. For me, it was more about the focus on not just how much I would eat, but like what I would eat and the obsession that kind of went along with it. If someone doesn't eat what they perceive to be healthy, there is a huge amount of distress and anxiety associated with it. I truly believe like this is going to make me a good person and this is the only way I should be eating. I'd probably be thinking about it from the minute I woke up until I went to bed. Spare sick. Hmm. So as usual, I'm on my phone. I am. I'm having a mindless scroll. And have you noticed how ubiquitous this so-called clean eating is? I've searched hashtag eat clean and there are about 62 million posts. Now I'm searching hashtag clean eating and there's like 50 million posts. A lot of the people posting are radiant 30 to 40-year-old women wearing tops that show off their tummies, so you can't help but notice how thin they are. And far out, when did gluten become the enemy? There's a lot of immaculate kitchens and fancy food, and it seems implied that if you want an immaculate body, an immaculate bowel, and a procession of immaculate poos that come out like Teflon-coated Snickers bars then you need to wipe down your bench tops and eradicate dairy and gluten and carbs and sugar. You need to hop into your activewear and you need to squat. Now, I'm someone who quite likes food and I have some activewear. I write about food, I podcast about it, and I'm pretty sure that there's nothing actually wrong with dairy and gluten unless you're allergic. And a bit of carbs and a bit of sugar is fine. So what's with this zealotry about food? And what happens when food choices stop being about yuck and yum but become a biblical battle between good and evil? I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about the dirty side of clean eating. Vegan, paleo, raw, protein shakes, juice cleansers, gluten-free, dairy-free, chia seeds. All of these things social media and diet culture will tell us the types of foods that we should be putting into our bodies. And I love eating so-called healthy food. Give me a salad and some chips and I'm really happy. But for some of us, the clean eating regime stops being about preferences and health and becomes militant, obsessive and joyless. I feel like clean eating for me was just another way to have control, to exert control over my body and sort of manipulate my weight and shape. Jeanette is 23 and has had disordered eating in different forms basically since puberty. A few years ago, she started down the path of eating 
clean. I think part of it is this idea of clean eating and being healthy as being this morally virtuous thing. That's something I really got into a lot. So what did clean exactly mean? For me, it's very visual. So the aesthetic I think of is thin white lady in her minimalist kitchen holding a mason jar with green juice <laughs> and a metal straw. Very visual. Eat colours of the rainbow, don't have sugar, no greasy fried foods, all that sort of stuff. Cutting out all these things that diet culture says like are bad foods, just not eating them at all. There is a pencil-thin line between healthy eating and what eating disorder experts call orthorexia nervosa, an obsession with healthy, good and righteous eating. So, Jeanette, can you paint a picture of a typical day when you were in the grip of orthorexia? It would start off with a green juice in the morning wanting to eat heaps of fruits and veggies and then avoiding all the foods that are bad food, like quote-unquote bad foods. I mean, I think it's really hard with social media, this idea of eating a certain way is something that we should celebrate and glorify, you know, like your acai bowl in the morning with your bananas on top and your your chia seeds. That aesthetic is like something that you're supposed to be striving for, and if you're not doing that, then that's bad. So that's very much ingrained as part of our culture, and that's why it's so hard to differentiate between what's disordered and what's not. Ironically, Jeanette's clean eating problem started after she sought professional help. I actually started seeing a dietitian in the treatment of my eating disorder and inadvertently had put me on this path of eating plant-based. And so that really spurred on my orthorexia without me knowing. So I started buying into plant-based is good foods and green foods are good foods and the rest of the stuff is bad. In a way, I'd convinced myself was like a good, quote-unquote, good eating disorder, which, of course, there's no such thing. People want to pursue a healthy diet. That in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it can go too far and can come with a lot of rules, rigidity, obsessional thinking, and a lot of psychological distress. Dr Gemma Sharp is a clinical psychologist and the head of body image research at Monash University. She says when so-called clean eating goes too far, it becomes disordered eating. Orthorexia nervosa, it's not in any of our diagnostic manuals, so there's no agreed-upon definition of it. There tends to be two elements that most people agree upon, and that's an absolute obsession with healthy eating and all that that entails. And the second is that this obsession and compulsion with eating healthy is having a debilitating effect on people's lives. The term orthorexia nervosa was coined by an American doctor in 1997. It gets its name from the Greek word ortho, meaning straight, proper or correct. Gemma says people with orthorexia can tend to give food a moral weight. 
Something that's perceived as less healthy is a lesser value and something that's more healthy is higher value. Some people will also add elements of obsession around the purity of food, so becoming very distressed when potentially eating impure foods, compulsive behaviours attached with this, overvalued ideas around the importance of this purity in food. It's so interesting, Gemma, because, you know, a lot of us want to eat better, you know, Mm -hmm. and eat more healthily. When does clean eating become something more than an attempt to be healthy? I think most people... When they're trying to eat healthy, it's it's a goal. It's not so distressing. It's really, I suppose, something more motivating. But certainly in the orthorexia nervosa case, it's if someone doesn't eat what they perceive to be healthy, there is a huge amount of distress and anxiety associated with it. And that's where it becomes concerning. It becomes a real battleground just to eat Gemma, in your practice, as with the people that we've interviewed, we've seen people move from other eating disorders to orthorexia nervosa. Why might this happen? Orthorexia nervosa can be a way to still maintain control over eating, but at least they are eating, so people are less worried around them. And their bodies can still potentially fulfil an ideal in that sort of toned, thin look. So they still absolutely have those eating disorder thoughts and behaviours, but it looks more socially acceptable because they're not low weight and they are actually eating now. Are there other behaviours associated with clean eating? It is correlated with a tendency to uh, engage in driven exercise as well. So engaging in exercise compulsively out of fear around weight gain usually and exercising through injury, illness, nothing really gets in their way of exercising. Dr Gemma says people with orthorexia can also use exercise to make up for breaking their own food rules. Whether that is, for example, restricting what they eat or engaging in over-exercise, it needs to be brought back into alignment because there's often a, a bit of a tally or a score that people are keeping in their heads about what they've consumed. Oh, it sounds so exhausting. It is, and a lot of my patients, they'll talk about just that mental load of the tally Like, I had this, which means I need to compensate by doing extra exercise or not eating as big a snack or not eating a snack at all. It's just, it's a constant compensation balance model, which is just mentally exhausting. During the day, I might say, hey, I've eaten that bad food this morning, can't have any more bad food today, only good foods today. Or I might try and go for a run or do some exercise afterwards to kind of work it off. This is Jeanette again. Remember that tallying that Dr Gemma talked about? Jeanette was constantly crunching the numbers. My life kind of revolved around the exercise, so everything would be planned around that, not life planned around the exercise. Even if I was injured, I had to go for a few hours at a time. I couldn't just go show up and do a little bit and go home. Like, if I was there, I had to be there, I had to commit. Beyond her intense exercise, deviating from the foods on her good list would send Jeanette into a spiral. Guilt is the number one thing that comes up, just feeling super guilty. If I'm in the moment and I'm eating this 
food that I feel is bad, I'm trying to restrict and eat as little of it as possible. And then I feel super guilty afterwards for having eaten anything. Jeanette is a Singaporean Chinese-Australian, and food is a huge part of her cultural and family life. A lot of Asian parents express love through food, and when she found herself rejecting her dad's cooking, Jeanette realised things were getting out of hand. I started cutting out foods that were black and brown because I'd gotten it to my head that, like, black and brown foods are bad for you. But culturally, like, a lot of our foods that my parents cook are brown and black. Mm. They're rich, they're deep, they're full of flavour, umami, goodness. But my parents would cook dinner and I just, like, could not bear to eat much of it, you know? So, Jeanette, you're now in recovery. When you think back to how you used to feel about your body, what comes to mind? Just, like, hate, so much anger, wanting to change it, thinking that if I did things to it, you know, change the way I ate, change the way... I moved my body, that I could change me, which is so sad, like, for that to start when you were so young, 12, 13. Oh, it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? Where do you think that came from? Uh, I think it's just a mixture of everything. You know, being a young girl, you compare yourselves to other people, this idea of a visual image of what you're supposed to look like was really clear. You know, teachers, parents, friends would make comments and that all shapes the body ideals that you have. And you're striving towards this, like, impossible thing. Like, when I think about, you know, what I wanted my body to look like, it was a patchwork of all the quote-unquote, like, best features of the people that I had met or seen And that's like a Frankenstein that's not some beautiful person. Having a strict regime and a set of rules and discipline to have to stick to, I think that's very attractive for me because that's how I obviously grew up. Meet Alana. She was a professional ballerina. Early in her career, Alana, like many other dancers, was put on a pretty hectic diet. It wasn't thought of as dangerous. It was work, work to maintain the ideal dancer's physique. They sent a couple of us to a dietitian. They wanted us to tone down a little bit and to look as felt, I suppose, as we possibly could. It was restrictive in hindsight. I do remember being ready for lunch and ready for a meal, and it was never quite enough. And I remember I'd have my lunch and it would be done in like two bites and then everyone else would keep going and I would be like, okay, but I would still be really hungry. I think I'm a tall girl, so I need a little bit more. Alana's professionally underwritten diet was very specific. I had a real licorice fetish at the time Mm -hmm. and I used to have a couple of pieces a day and that was kind of almost like my reward for all the hard work. And so then they reduced that down. I was like, well, I had one piece of licorice a day because they were like, it's still having your licorice, but only one piece. And then I used to have like almonds and yogurt. And so they'd be like, you can have seven almonds. Not eight almonds, seven. Like Jeanette, Alana always felt like there was a price to pay if she didn't follow the strict rules around food. I'd always feel guilty. It was very much, you're letting yourself down and then, okay, well, tomorrow we'll just, we'll tighten down and we'll do better or maybe we'll eat a little less tomorrow, I suppose. What did clean eating mean to you? I suppose restriction. It was very much a sense of control and and almost like I was doing the right thing for my body. 
For me, clean eating also means a long list of no-fly foods. Oh, for sure. Can you list off some of the things that were on that list? Well, obviously alcohol is number one. So often they're gluten-free, so no flour, no processed like wheat products, lots of vegetables, no chocolate, no sugar, no lollies. Even some fruits sometimes are excluded because they're considered too, too much sugar. Almost uh, gives you like a sense of purpose for a little while as well. Eventually, Alana quit ballet and was no longer dancing eight hours a day. But like her crushed toes and appreciation for Tchaikovsky, her attitude to food remained. I would go to extremes and I took on a lot of healthy eating plans and I did a lot of, you know, challenges, quote unquote, health, clean challenges. But I definitely had a skewed idea of what healthy eating was. When I first moved to Sydney, I would eat like a head of broccoli and that would be my dinner. I was like, that's healthy because it's vegetables. But there's no protein, there's no fat, there's no good stuff in there. There's no yumminess there. No, I just, I'd whack a whole bunch of salt on it. And <gasps> that, was, that was my dinner and I'd be like, oh, that's eating well. But it really wasn't. But I just, I didn't have a barometer of what was normal at that point in time. And for Alana, that barometer still hadn't been calibrated when her wedding day rolled around. I wanted to look as felt as I could and I had picked a dress that was very showy on the arm so I was really wary of having, you know, that tuck shop lady arms or whatever they call them. Her food and exercise obsession stalked her all the way down the aisle. I went on one of those eating plans where they deliver the food, the meal plan type thing, and yep. then I um, embarked on a very hectic exercise regime in the goal of losing as much weight as possible and then I actually went a little bit in the opposite direction and um, lost all my boobs and I had to get extra cups put into my dress. Alana looks back on that time with some regret at the things she missed because she was hell-bent on sticking to her clean eating plan. I remember my brother came over from the UK and he cooked this beautiful big meal for the family for the first time we were all together and I sat off to the side with my little packet meal, <laughs> which at the time was like, this is discipline, this is what I need to do. But in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that would have been a really special special thing to have done. Family time around the wedding wasn't the only thing Alana missed out on. I would stay home and I would not go to events and things because I didn't want to drink or I was eating clean or I would leave things early a lot because people would be like, oh, we're getting pizza, we all want to share. And I'd be like, well, I'm not eating it. It does isolate you a little bit. But at the time you just think, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. This is the right thing to do. This is the typical story we keep hearing is that there's moral weight attached to different choices that you make when you pick up a piece of food. Yes, yes. It's a moral decision. Are you yeah. a good person or are you a bad person? So have you managed, and if so, how, to disentangle that idea from the way that you choose foods? I'm still learning. It's it's hard. It's really hard to sort of look at something and be like, it's okay to eat that. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you any less. It just means that that's what you want to eat and that's okay. So... How do you try to practice compassion towards yourself and towards what your body is now? I like to remind myself that I'm not 18 anymore mm. and that my body is going to change. I think I've really struggled with that, like of being like, okay, you're not always going to have the flat stomach. So telling myself that it's okay to have a little bit of a pooch is fine um, and that can be equally as beautiful. I would check the time and be like, okay, when am I allowed to have a snack? And what kind of snack could I have? I want you to meet Mel. Like Alana and Jeanette, Mel's life revolved around food and exercise. 
I've had this much protein, so I've got this many carbs left and I can only have this many fats. So I'd be thinking about it from the minute I woke up until I went to bed. Mel also has a long history of other eating disorders starting from her teen years. She moved from binging to bulimia to extreme calorie counting and then orthorexia. Mel became obsessed with the macros or the minute makeup of her food. Different types of carbs, how much and what types of fat, how much protein and fibre, analysing every milligram of food that went into her mouth. Like I was constantly researching and learning, which was, in a way, you could say that's really great. But at the same time, the more that I would learn, the more I would just, you can't unlearn it. And because I was constantly learning about or reading as obsessively researching, it would just take up all of my mental space. Mm. And I don't actually know how I functioned. She was pedantic about weighing, measuring and preparing her own food food that she'd labelled good or clean in order to achieve the unattainable, quote-unquote, perfect physique. In the end, it just naturally gravitated towards kind of separating all the foods to if it was a protein, carb or a fat. So I'd just go grocery shopping and that's all I would see (laughs) rather than seeing foods Mm. for what they are. It would just be that's a fat, that's a carb and a protein and I'd buy things that would be easier to kind of split up on when I was cooking a meal. I wouldn't even be able to kind of touch anything someone else cooked. I'd have to clean the plates and cook it all myself and measure out the oil and all the ingredients myself. In the depths of her orthorexia, Mel used exercise to compensate for eating. At first, she exercised if she ate something she deemed to be bad. But eventually, the exercise elbowed its way into all her time. When it was, like, obsessive, like, Mm. uh, it was twice a day, so I'd get up maybe four in the morning, go for a few hours, and then go to work, come back, go to the gym. But, yeah, twice a day, seven days a week. And here's the insidious thing about orthorexia. Everything can look fine or even great from the outside, and you might be kicking those fitness goals, looking strong, glowing, and chowing down on so-called healthy food. But in actual fact, it's derailing your life. The way people reacted to her at her gym dug Mel's hole even deeper. When you start exercising and eating well, people just, you know, the comments, um, there's no ill intent, I don't think, but people will say, oh, you look so fit. And and I did. I, I was, I'd never exercised before I started getting into it and I was, you know, I looked healthier than I did, even though I probably wasn't. So the positive feedback, the validation, it just kind of drove me to keep going and doing more and try to find another way to be stronger or grow my muscles or be fitter. It's so interesting, Mel, because you're right. You look like if you look great, <laughs> what you know, no one's going to spot that you've got a problem. Did anybody ever see it in you, like see what you were up to and understand what was going on inside? No, I don't mm. think so. I think with disordered eating, it's it's something that really flourishes in secrecy. And I'd already had many years of hiding my behaviours, so I guess I was really good at it. <laughs> How did social media and that sort of fitspo, inspo, interact with your orthorexia? 
it was just fuel to a fire. <laughs> it's all just visual and you'd see like before or after photos of people following a certain diet or doing some kind of exercise and I'd be like, all right, well, that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be the thing that's going to help me. And it was just always there. Help for Mel's disordered eating came from an unexpected place. What helped me the most was getting diagnosed with ADHD. So when I started the medication, that's when the, the voice kind of just died down in my head. And that gave me the space to really realise that there's actually so much more out there and that it doesn't have to take over my life. How does it feel to have more room in your head for other things that aren't food and, and counting and weighing? Oh, God, I just feel like someone's moved out of my head. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember telling my partner, like, it was only mid last year, and I said, is this what it feels like to just be a normal person? Because the normal for me had always been having that constant voice and thought in my head that when it kind of went away, I just felt like it's quiet, you know? Of course, Mel's solution is not going to be everyone's, but it's worth remembering that orthorexia, or obsessively clean eating, rarely, if ever, exists in a bubble. I have actually never seen in my clinical career an eating disorder that was just an eating disorder. This is eating disorder expert Dr Gemma Sharp from Monash University again. There are always a lot of comorbidities and that's what makes them challenging to treat. The ones we most commonly see are anxiety and depression, but certainly OCD goes hand in hand with a lot of eating disorders. So the obsessions tend to be around food and body shape and the compulsions are the behaviours that allow someone to feel like they're controlling their food intake and their body shape and size. ADHD, the relationship is still being researched but our understanding so far, it tends to be the impulsive behaviours around ADHD that are associated with eating disorders. It's here in the interview that Dr Gemma says something that makes me feel better about all the dumb things we do as women to endlessly self-improve and how our desire to accept ourselves is constantly undermined. The human race has evolved because we aspire to be better than what we were yesterday. And body image is a part of that, sadly. And so I suppose acceptance is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it's like, well, why should I accept that? I want to self-improve. Mm. And sadly, that tends to be associated with the pursuit of thinness. Let's talk about recovery. Can you walk us through the process of helping somebody through orthorexia nervosa? With orthorexia nervosa, the rigidity around uh, food and eating is a core part of recovery. So we go, how do you have these beliefs? Are they really so set in stone? And we start to chip away at them. But we also start to do more behavioural exercises too and go, okay, so if you do break a food rule or you eat something that you think you shouldn't have, is it really the end of the world? Can you tolerate that distress? And ultimately through practising 
breaking those food rules, eating a wider range of foods, people realise that they can tolerate the distress and eventually the distress becomes lower. I will say that recovery from any eating issue can take quite a while and just validate anyone who is in that stage and wondering why they're not recovering faster because it really takes a long time. Part of recovery from an eating disorder is appreciating our body for what it can do, not from having the same snake-hipped silhouette that Axel Rose did back in 1987. Health is not a particular body size or shape or appearance. Health is what your body does for you. And I know I feel like I'm in a privileged position of having relatively good health, and not everyone has that. But I think health is not a number on a scale. It's not always a blood chart or anything like that. Health is, can you do in life what you'd like to do? And I think if you pursue that, that is definitely more achievable. Dr Gemma says that instead of trying to be batshit positive about our bodies, which can be unattainable and also kind of weird and fake, especially if you've spent years hating yourself, just not being negative about yourself can be enough. It's called body neutrality, and it's an approach used often in clinical practice and an important part of getting better. I think it is a very long way to go from extreme body negativity to body positivity. So neutrality appears to be that nice middle place where you might not be saying a lot of nice things about your body, but you're not saying all of the negative things that you once were. You're not saying my body is gross, disgusting, no one wants to look at this. You're more like, my body is okay. I can work with this. Jeanette, who we heard from at the start of this episode, can relate to this idea. I think for me, body neutrality is all about respecting my body and its functionality, its functionality over aesthetic. So it's, oh my God, look at how um, wonderful my body is. It allows me to do all these things that I want to do with my life instead of picking apart how my body looks, which is so destructive and does nothing for me. My body can produce laughter. My body can move with strength and purpose. My body can make a Snickers bar like a factory perfect bought one. Da, 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 da. But seriously, if you're worried that maybe your focus on eating clean is taking over your life, you could start by chatting to your GP. And the Butterfly Foundation and Inside Out Institute have some really great online resources and ideas about how to start feeling better about your relationship with your body and with food. Recovery is not a linear path. It's very much a roller coaster and sort of like a messy circle. And I know that no matter what comes up in front of me, I'm going to be able to get through it. And with food, it's so much more a joyful experience, but it's also not my everything anymore. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungadda, Bidjigal and Gadigal peoples. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Tamar Kranswick. Supervising producer is Alex Lolback, And our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. Raising kids today is tricky. So 
What are the things that children really need to grow and thrive? I'm Maggie Dent. I'm a parenting educator and I host the podcast Parental As Anything. It's a practical guide to raising great kids that helps you be the parent you really want to be. No matter your parenting dilemma, there's all my best solutions. Parental As Anything with me, Maggie Dent, in the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts.